We're going to jump right in, and um, you might be thinking as we go into this series called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians, it's based on a book uh, by James Emery White uh, of the same name, and uh, you might be thinking, well, I'm a Christian. Like, is this for me? Like, do I get to just relax and sit back? I mean, do I finally get to uh, sleep in service without guilt? Like, like, this is my time. This is my moment. Uh, and I would just uh, argue, no, uh, actually, uh, we are doing this series really from the standpoint of recognizing that uh, there, I've had multiple conversations in the last couple of weeks with people who uh, aren't quite yet ready to make the decision to be a Christ follower. There's lots of questions that they have. And, and for us who maybe are Christ followers, we are looking more and more for ways in which we can equip you to take the message of Jesus into your uh, life circle. And what I mean by that is that you, church is just one part of your life. And I think, unfortunately, as a pastor, Kelly and I have, have shared about this, that we will admit that uh, as pastors, um, we forget that church isn't your life, like, like it is our life. Church is our work, it's our church, it's our, our home sometimes. I mean, it feels that way, like we're here all the time. Uh, our kids are involved with church, my son's uh, on staff here. And so uh, church kind of is all-encompassing for us, but it's not for you. And that's okay. You have other parts of your life. You go to work, you, uh, you have your community in your neighborhoods, and your kids go to school, and, and you have friends with their, your kids' parents, or kids' friends' parents, and all of these things. And as a church, it is our job as leaders of the church to equip you to take the message of Jesus to go into those places and be able to be, you know, Jesus to them to answer questions when, when people ask them. And so we hope that this series will help you answer some of the hard questions that are out there. We're, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at topics like, what's the big deal about Jesus? We're going to look at uh, legalism, judgmentalism, and hypocrisy. <laughs> That'll be fun. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, and then the, the fourth week, it's going to be people of the way. The, we're going to look at grace and truth. Um, in this book, it answers, uh, it covers a lot of things that uh, I'm not going to be tackling in this series. We're going to just touch on a few of the things that are in here. But I want to give you uh, our theme verse for this series. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I kind of alluded to this in my prayer this morning, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Listen, we, we have answers for the world. We have the answer for the world. We have hope uh, we, and we know that our hope comes from Jesus, and when we go into the world, we have it. The question is, is how are we going to communicate it, and are we going to communicate it with gentleness and respect? I would define myself as a proclaimed skeptic. I don't believe in magicians. 
Like magicians, like, you know, there's some people who, who will see a magician on TV and they're like, that's totally real. I'm always looking for the angle. It's not real. I'm a skeptic when it comes to, uh, you know, I grew up with the, the saying in my home that said, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. That's how I grew up. So, you know, you get a good, a good piece of news and it sounds really good. My response is, nah, there's something wrong here. And this may be discomforting to you as having a pastor who is a bit of a skeptic, uh, but I think when it comes to our Christian faith, when it comes to any faith for that matter, I really kind of approach things with a healthy dose of skepticism. I, I want to know, like, why it is that I believe what I believe. I grew up, yeah, show me how it works. I, I grew up in, in the church. I grew up, uh, I went from uh, I, I was going to a Christian school. Uh, I was in the church. My parents were pastors for 18 years, uh, all of my uh, school years. And then I go straight into Bible college. And, and honestly, all along the way, there was skepticism in my life. And, and it's okay to be skeptical as long as you're asking questions and you're not being critical. See, there's a difference between skeptical and critical. If you're critical, you're just a jerk. If you're skeptical, you're just asking questions. And, and so for us this morning, it's okay to ask questions, and it's okay for us to be able to, at times, be able to say, I don't know if I have the answer to that, and be able to come back to it. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, what I would like us to do over the next four weeks is, as we're addressing some of these questions, if you have a question that kind of comes, that's a side question of this, I would encourage you to not just stand up and ask the question. Uh, that, that was way back in the day I used to do that, and I learned my lesson pretty quickly. Um, what I would ask you to do is to email me the question. To just Ryan at LifehouseSA.com. Lifehouse and then SA for San Antonio.com. If you have a question that comes up, email it to me, and I'll, my commitment to you is to address it the following week at the beginning of the message, and then we'll go into the next uh, series of questions. So, I have three specific goals in mind with this series. This is going to be a little bit more educational than inspirational of a series. But the first is this, is to try to explain the Christian faith in a way that doesn't assume that you have a foundational knowledge or understanding of it. Uh, and I don't mean that in like a condescending way. I don't mean that you're dumb. I just mean that I'm going to assume that you're normal, that, that most people today don't have a foundational knowledge. They don't have an understanding of the Christian faith. And I've been guilty of assuming that there is at least a base level, a baseline of morality and, and, um, and understanding, a biblical knowledge that exists within our culture. And I'm recognizing that that may used to have been true, but is not true any longer. And so... Today, most aren't raised in a Christian home, and if they were, they were unchurched or unschooled in the things of the Christian faith. So I'm not going to assume that you have an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Second, I'd like to try to answer some of the mo more common questions that people outside of the church are asking, right? They, they want to know, like, the answers to these questions before they ever would step foot into a church, 
They're good questions. They're fair questions. They're reasonable. They're questions that, that should be asked honestly. And then finally, the one that probably is most applicable to all of us is, is that if you already consider yourself a Christian, is that you would benefit from hearing these messages. We are equipped to take the message of Jesus into our life circles and engage people into faith conversations. Because when, while you are a person of faith, I'm guessing, here's the reality, is you still have aspects of your faith that you have questions about. That even if you are a believer, it's okay to be a believer and still have questions in regard to this. So as I said, the book that I'm basing this on is in this. We are going to make these available to you. We ask that uh, you take one per family and, uh, and we'll go until we run out of them if we need to. And uh, there's, if, listen, if you, you're like, I don't think I need this, but I have a, a really good friend who, uh, who would benefit from this, uh, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. Buy it for them. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean that as though we can't afford it. I'm just saying, like, if, you, if you've got somebody in your head that, that would benefit from this, then, then let it cost you something and go out of your way to go and purchase that for them and say, hey, you know what, our church is going through this. I'd love for you to do it. That way it leaves enough for those who are here uh, to be able to get those. And those are, are completely free at the Welcome Center. So uh, those ones are free. Those ones have already been paid for by you. Uh, and so we want to get those in the hands of people who have questions who are maybe skeptical like I often am. So we're going to start this morning with the question, who is God? Just a light, small question. We're going to be here until about three this afternoon. Uh, whether you accept or reject the existence of God, most of us have a picture of God that we have drawn in our minds. And usually this picture is based on a, a series of ideas or feelings or past experiences that we've had in our life. And the question is, is, is it a good picture? Is it a good picture of God? Is it the right one? Is it a, a fair one? Particularly in, in, uh, in the part of getting his nature right. Uh, the kind of God he is. Is he moral? Does he have integrity? Is he loving? See, many aren't really sure. In fact, most people who reject the idea of God don't really reject the possibility of his existence. They reject the nature, what they think that they know about him. That's the part of God that they reject. They say things like, I mean, if he's so powerful and he's so strong, why is the world such a screwed up place? If he's supposed to be so good and he's supposed to be so loving, then why is there so much suffering in this world? And why has it gone on for so long? Why doesn't God just step in and stop it? I've heard people say that when I look at the world and how it's being run, how it's playing out, if I was God, I could do it better. <laughs> They're probably type A personalities or ones on the Enneagram, but they're like, I could manage this thing a little bit better than God. One blogger put it this way, if I was God, the following words and phrases would not exist. War, hunger, drugs, murder, disease, poverty, rape, 
poor, fight, genocide, famine, jealousy, slavery, homeless, conflict, hate, racism, natural disaster, greed, crime, oppression, victim, gun, third world, accident, weapon, atrocity, bomb, abortion, molestation, dictators, steal, mental illness, sorrow, kill, sadness, loneliness, death, anger, apology, old, old, (laughs) Uh, need, evil, sick, cancer, and the last word he put down was the word hell. That's how he sees, that's all he sees when he looks at the world. That's the lens that he's viewing God through. That's how he's indicting God. That's how he's, he's judging God is based upon these things. But is that all there is to the story? Uh, it reminds me of a series of YouTube videos that exist out there in, in the interwebs that uh, we may get flagged for showing. Uh, but uh, it's a, it, they take like these innocent uh, childhood movies and, uh, and with just a little editing and a little tweaking completely change the, the storyline. They make something that was really good like Mary Poppins and turn it into Scary Mary. Uh, that was the first one I saw. This next, the one that you're about to see is one that I think if you have children, uh, you will know all too well. So take a look at this. learn to control it, I'm sure. There is beauty in it, but also great danger. does not adequately reflect the movie. That is like the horror version of, I mean, I would argue that as a parent, the movie Frozen is a horror movie anyways, but no. Listen, here's the thing is that that doesn't reveal the true nature of the movie. 
It doesn't reveal the true nature of, of all of those characters. And it, could it be that we have this distorted, mashed up version of the nature of God in our heads? based on some selective scenes that we've heard about in the Bible or, uh, or some of the things that we've seen in, in the world in which we live, that somehow we've just distorted things and not gotten the true character and nature. Philip Yancey writes this, he says, about people who come into his office and say, I don't believe in God. He, he tells them, he said, well, why don't you sit down and tell me about this God that you don't believe in, and I will probably tell you that I don't believe in him either. So let's talk about then what we do with evil and suffering, because that's really the issue, isn't it? It's, it's the most spiritually persistent question people ask across every world religion, every philosophy, every worldview, is why is there evil and suffering in this world? Right? It's not, here's, the, here's the issue, though, is it's not just a question that Christians have to answer. The truth is, is that every religion, every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology has to answer that same question because the reality of suffering is not just unique for Christians to explain. I don't care if you're Buddhist or Muslim or Mormon or Scientologist or Hindu or maybe nothing at all. Everyone must answer the question, why are we living in such a screwed up world? Even atheists. And in fact, it's one of the arguments against atheism is that atheists may not believe in God, but they believe in the inherent goodness of human beings and in the inevitable upward progression of naturalistic evolution, which means that human beings should be becoming more increasingly good, increasingly noble, should be more peaceful, more humane through the advances of education, politics, technology. So in theory, every day should be better and better and better. I don't think I have to explain to you that that's not our current situation. But there's a reason this question about evil and suffering is often laid at the feet of Christians. Because in the Bible, we believe that as, Christi as Christians, that God is all-powerful. That he's able to do anything that he wants. And we also believe from Scripture that, that, that it teaches that God is also thoroughly good that he's a, a good heavenly father. Not mean, not capricious, not vindictive, yet, yet bad things happen in this world. And so what happens is, is the question often comes to us where when there is suffering in the world, when there, are tr when there is tragedy for many, many people, those dynamics just don't mix. How can God be all powerful, but also all good? How can he allow bad things to happen? And since they do happen, people decide either God isn't all good or he isn't all powerful. So let me try to give an answer that the Christian faith gives to the question of evil and suffering. And you can compare it to any other answers you want. It's really more of a story. It's kind of a long story. It began a while ago, but it starts with a once upon a time. Once upon a time... God made us in order to love us. Once upon a time, God made us to love us. 
And, and let's not just skip past that or, or, or quickly rush past that. That's the heart of the story. That is the great human drama of this world that is, a, that is unfolding around us, that there was a God who created, and he created for the purpose of relationship. He, he created for love, for a reciprocal interaction, that this wouldn't just be a creation, but a creation that loves that we are, are crafted and designed as each individual for the purpose of being related to, for the purpose of being known, for the purpose of being cherished. Now, obviously, if it's going to be that kind of relationship, God needed to make it real. He needed to make it authentic, not something that would be fabricated. It's why he didn't just make a bunch of robots, right? He, he, he instead decided to, to give us a choice, Give us the option to respond to the creator's love. He didn't choose to seduce us against our will. Instead, he, he woos us, knowing that in so doing, we might reject his advances. But this is the only way to have a relationship be a relationship. There has to be choice. This is the dynamic at the heart of human existence, that we are created for a relationship with God. And we either enter into that relationship or we don't. God could have made me love him, but if he had, his relationship with me would, would be meaningless. God wants our relationship with him and with others to be real, to be genuine, to be something that is tangible, so when he created me, he had to take the risk of setting me free. The first instance of this freedom to choose really came from the very first humans, Adam and Eve. Now, we could have a fun conversation about how God got to the first pair and the science behind the creation and all of that, but that's in here. So you read this, and I'll skip past that part and start right with the story of Adam and Eve, which is where our story really begins. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, God gave them one and only one directive. It was as if he said, look around creation. You have paradise at your fingertips. You can run free. You can dream. You can create. You can build. You can drink from any of the streams, eat from any of the trees, except for that one. Except for that one. It could have been anything that God set aside. The point was is that he set something aside. He, he created a choice. He created freedom. Will you follow me or will you not? Will you let me lead you in this life or not? Will you, uh, will you obey me or not? It's your call. I want what's between us to be real and you have a choice. And so he led us be free. He, he used a tree. And they made the conscious, purposeful decision to go against the love, against the relationship. They could have had a life of intimacy with God, living in a world under his leadership and direction and protection. And instead, they chose a life outside of his leadership, outside of his direction and protection. There was plan A and then there was plan B and they chose plan B and when they did that, it ushered in sin and evil onto the stage. And listen, 
it also ushered in the consequences of sin and evil. It's almost like the unleashing of a disease that spread from human to human, and we've been making the same decision ever since. Every single one of us have made the same choices that Adam and Eve made over and over again. Every single one of us has chosen to go against God, to sin, to disobey. And it means that evil and suffering is simply what erupts when we live apart from God. It's what everything that happens to the world and to life apart from God. Everything that we are experiencing in this world is a world separated from God. And when we chose against God, all hell broke loose, literally. The decision for the first humans made, uh, that they made to reject the leadership and ongoing intimacy with God really separated them from any sort of intimacy or relational capacity with him. Theologians term this as the fall. They talk about how we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way that God intended to be and that we've been turning away from God ever since. The result of our collective choice, if you will, to run away from God is so deep, it's not just a moral evil, it's a naturalistic one as well. The whole world is sick. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, he says that all of creation is groaning under the collective choice of our sin. It's why we have earthquakes. It's why there's volcanoes. It's why there's, there's mudslides and wildfires and birth defects and COVID and AIDS. And it's why there is, we live in a fallen world. Philip Yancey writes it like this. The pain and suffering and heartache is a huge cosmic scream that something is wrong. That the entire human condition is completely out of whack. Which raises this interesting idea that God is not behind what is tragic with this world, much less responsible for it. People are. The London Times once asked for essays on the topic, what's wrong with the world? And one of the most famous journalists of the time named G.K. Uh, Chesterton simply wrote, Dear Sir, in response to your article, what's wrong with the world, I am. That was his essay. Philip Yancey has written several books on evil and suffering, and he co-authored a book with Dr. Paul Brand about exploring leprosy and the toll that it has on human life. He's also a, a devout Christian, and he was contacted by a television producer after the death of Princess Diana. They wanted him to appear on the show and explain how God could have possibly allowed such a tragic accident. His response was, could it have had something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles per hour in a narrow tunnel, he asked the producer. How exactly was God involved? From this, Yancey reflected on how often we blame God for what we do or what others do. For example, when boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean boxer in a match, the athlete said in a press conference, sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Or when a, a letter to a Christian family therapist, a young woman wrote how she became pregnant while dating a boy and wanted to know why God allowed that to happen to her. 
Or when South Carolina mother Susan Smith gave her official confession to pushing her two sons into a lake to drown, she said that as she released the car, she then went running after it as it sped down the ramp, screaming, Oh God, oh God, no, why did you let this happen? Nancy asked, what exactly was the role that God played in a boxer pummeling his opponent, a teenager abandoning her virtue, or a mother drowning her children? God let us choose, and we did. Our self-destructive bent knows no bounds. Historian Will Durant once observed at the time of his writing in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Who is that on? That's on us. On a more personal level, here's how one psychologist describes it. We drink too much. We gamble compulsively. We allow pornography to control our minds. We drive too fast. We work like there's no tomorrow. We challenge the boss disrespectfully and then blow up when he strikes back. We spend money we don't have and can't possibly repay. We fuss and we fight at home and create misery. We toy with the dragon of infidelity. And then when the wages of those sins and foolishness come due, we turn our shocked faces up to heaven and we cry, why me? Lord. In truth, we are suffering the natural consequences of dangerous behavior that is guaranteed to produce pain. See if this sounds familiar from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good. <laughs> What's the first part of that say? In the, in the last days. <laughs> that sounds pretty familiar to today. So, so why did God do it? Why did he create us if he knew that there would be pain and suffering in the world that would come with his creation, not just to each other, not that we would just experience, but pain and suffering to him as well? Because this is like an ulcer to God. That God is love. He really does love And there's such a superficial idea of love floating around. And the truth is, is that when you truly love, there is a risk. Risk of suffering, risk of loss, risk of rejection when you love. But this willingness to be wounded on the deepest of levels, there cannot be authentic relationship. There cannot be real love without risk and suffering. God's greatest longing is to commune with us for eternity. And C.S. Lewis wrote it like this. I love this picture. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free will involves, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. God has refused to let the perils of authentic love prevent him from loving. He also wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with uh, with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. 
impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. So why doesn't God just step in and end it? Well, let's just be glad that he hasn't. If God wiped out all of evil, all wrongdoing, every person who committed harm against another tonight, how many of us would live to see the dawn? God could wipe out all evil, all suffering this very night, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because of his love for people like you and me. Because he cares about us. Because if at midnight tonight God decreed that all evil would be stamped out in the universe, none of us would be here at 12.01. I'm glad he's exercising restraint. So where is God? Where is God in all of this? I read of a man who was in conflict with his 15-year-old daughter. He knew she was using birth control, and several nights she had not bothered to come home at all. As parents, he and his wife had tried various forms of punishment, but nothing seemed to make much of a difference. Their daughter lied to them, deceived them, always found a way to turn the tables on them, blaming her behavior on them for being so strict. He said that he remembered standing in front of the window in his living room one night, staring out into the darkness and waiting for his daughter to come home. He said he felt such rage Inside of him, he was so angry with his daughter for the way she manipulated him and his wife and constantly tried to find ways to hurt them. He was also upset because he knew she was hurting herself more than anyone. And in that moment, he understood more than ever before the passages in the Bible where God expressed frustration. Passages talking about how the people knew how to wound God and how God would cry out in pain. And yet, he said, when my daughter came home in the wee hours of the morning, I wanted nothing in the world so as much as to take her in my arms, to love her, to tell her I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. And I wonder if we've ever thought of God as the lovesick father. A God who is standing in front of the window, gazing achingly into the darkness, waiting for his children to come home. But he isn't just waiting. He entered into an all-out rescue mission. He's invested himself in the process of healing, that, healing the wounds that come from the choices that we've made. The suffering that we are experiencing. The heart of the Christian faith is that God himself came to planet Earth, and it's everything that we celebrated last weekend. He came in the form of a person named Jesus, and he suffered he knows about pain. He knows about rejection. He, he knows what it is to hunger, injustice, and cruelty. He knows all of these things. He's experienced suffering. As German theologian Jürgen Moltmann once wrote, when it comes to Christianity, we are talking about the crucified God. Left to ourselves, all of us face a cross unless somebody is willing to go and take our place in a way that would allow the penalty to be lifted. Jesus on the cross was God entering into our reality, coming into this world, experiencing it like we do. This wasn't suffering for its own sake, but suffering so that we could be free. 
that we could use our free will to choose again, only this time making the right choice. Frederick Buechner put it this way, like a father saying about a sick child, I'd do anything to make you well. God finally calls his own bluff, and he does it. He held out his hand. He took the nails. The ultimate deliverance, the most significant healing, the most strategic rescue has come. Our greatest and our most terrible affliction has been addressed. God has given us the greatest answer to our question. He has given us himself. And he's going to keep giving himself to any and all who will return to him until the end of time. And yes, the end of time will come. A missionary once was once asked what Jesus will say when he returns to the earth because Jesus himself said he would return at the end of all of this. He thought it was a weird question, but then he remembered a verse in the Bible that says that Jesus will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. And they wanted to know, what's the shout going to be? What is it that Jesus is going to say? And the missionary thought for a moment, and then it came to him. He said, enough. Jesus will shout enough. Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness, and enough disease. At the end when he returns, Christ will shout, enough. That's the story we should know. And it raises the real question when it comes to our broken, messed up world is will pain and suffering drive us away from God or will it drive us to him? Because let's be clear, the whole reason it is being allowed and that enough has not yet been shouted is because he's hoping for people like you and you to return to him. You've been given this chance to return. You might even say, you mean God endures all of those things for me? And the answer to that is yes. Because he loves you. He's crazy about you. And that's the story of the Christian faith. And hopefully it gives you an answer to why there is pain and suffering in this world. And why that pain and suffering will not be the final word. And why pain and suffering should never make you question the character of God. It's not his deal. He's just trying to rescue us from it. Let's pray.